Heavenly Father, those words from that last song are true, unashamed because of mercy, your mercy. And um, the greatest need of every single soul in this room and in this building and in this world is to know you and to experience that mercy firsthand. And so my prayer for today for myself and for my friends here is that you would so speak to our hearts through your word that a, a fire, a light would burn in the middle of our soul, not only to, to draw us deeper into your mercy and your grace through the gospel, but Father, that we would come to be bearers of mercy to the people around us, Father. I pray that as we push even deeper in Psalm 63, Father, you would minister to our hearts, especially people in this room right now who are walking through very difficult, dark times, Father. I pray that you would speak into our souls and cause life to come into being, Father. Joy, to be where joy wasn't there before. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. So one of the most powerful scenes in the novel, The Silmarillion. How many people have read The Silmarillion? Okay, great. So you guys are going to know the scene. Um, don't spoil it. It's written by J.R. Tolkien and his son Christopher uh, worked on it as well after his father died. It's in the same world as The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which you guys are probably more familiar with. So in, in the final scene of the Battle of Narniath Arnodiad, which is the book's greatest, most central battle, um, there is uh, an event that happens that I think will help us sort of get our, our mind in the right space before we dive into Psalm 63. So the glorious city of Gondolin has been hidden and protected for ages from Morgoth, which is, he's the greatest threat of Middle-earth. He's the bad guy in Lord of the Rings. That's his boss. Morgoth and his forces have not been able to find Gondolin. Yet Turgon, the king of Gondolin, and his people are now about to be discovered by Morgoth. They're about to be discovered by his forces. And they represent, really, in this story, the only hope for any victory against this enemy. The only hope for Middle-earth. But as Morgoth's forces close in on the hidden city, two brave brothers, Hurin and Huyor, promise Turgon, the king, protection. And what they say is, we're going to head out and we're going to draw him with a band of men out away from the city. We're going to protect you. We're going to keep this city alive. And so they do this. They're successful initially, too. The enemy's forces follow these two men, Huron and Huyor, and they follow them away from Gondolin, allowing Turgon and his people to escape. But eventually these two brothers are faced with having to turn and fight. They can't run anymore. They can't draw them off anymore. So they turn around and they prepare to fight Morgoth's forces, clinging to the hope that Turgon and Gondolin are now alive. And there's hope for Middle-earth um, to be rid of Morgoth one day. So they turn and fight. And though few in number, these, these men prove valiant initially in stopping Morgoth's troll guard and this endless stream of, of orcs that are trying to take out these guys. Yet as the enemy gets closer, their arrows start to hit their marks and the men start to fall. 
And eventually, Huyor, one of the brothers, takes an arrow to the eye and falls. And only Hurian is remaining. One brother remains. And in this story, this brother drops his shield, surrounded by a sea of enemies, and he grabs his axe with two hands, and he runs towards them. And he runs towards them, slaying one orc after another, crying out 70 times two words. Ore intoluva, which you guys don't know what that means. Some of you may know. It means day shall come again. He's captured, he's brought to Morgoth, and a lot of events happen after that that I'm not going to spoil for you. Day shall come again, is what he said. Even in the darkest hours of this fictional story, Middle Earth, this man clung to the hope that day would come again. He said it repeatedly into the darkness, defying the enemies that were coming at him. And David in Psalm 63, is effectively saying the same thing. Day shall come again. So turn with me if you're not there already. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Psalm 63 begins like this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands." My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David cries out, my soul clings to you, God. My soul clings to you in the darkest of hours, and your right hand upholds me. And this is David, as we begin to close in on the end of this psalm, you guys remember the first four weeks or so that we were looking at this, or three weeks we were looking at this, we covered all the way up to pretty much 63.7, and now we're looking at 7 and 8 today. And over the past few weeks, we've been seeing David fight to find his way back home. He wants to get home. And home for David isn't a place. Home for David is a person. Listen to how he begins that first verse. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. And now after having fought his way through the wasteland where there is no water, where God feels a million miles away, he begins to, through the course of this psalm, 
recall and remember who God is. Remember his power, remember his glory, remember his steadfast love, which is better than life. He remembers God has been his help, and he holds on to that. And as he remembers, as he recalls, it is, it is though the, the fingers of David's soul begin to find purchase in the arms of God. It's still night. His situation has not changed. There are things still broken in his life. And if you recall, the things that were broken in his life, most scholars believe that David was in a situation where he was pushed out into the wilderness while writing this psalm. And he was pushed out because his son was trying to kill him and take the throne. Absalom. Absalom, if he were to find David in the middle of the wilderness, would kill his own father just because he was that greedy for the throne of Israel. And yet David here on his knees, pleading before God, is finding satisfaction by remembering who God is. You can almost, when you read this text, hear his tears of desperation. And that's not an accident. God wants you to hear David's tears. He wants you to hear the pain in his heart because he wants to know what to do. He wants us to know what to do when we're lost, when we're in the wilderness of the soul. Psalm 63 is the pathway from the wilderness of the soul back home in the arms of God. It's the pathway from the darkness of night to the day that needs desperately to come. And we need to know this path. We need to know this path because it leads us to God. So listen to how this stands, stands to closes one more time. Verse seven and eight. In the shadow of your wings, God, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So in the watches of the night, David is recalling God's help in the past. We talked about last week how um, he had called to memory, remembered who God was, and God was his help. And what he's doing now is he is turning from remembering to relying. He's not simply remembering anymore. He's relying. He is moving from beholding who God is to believing. He's shifting from trying to find a way back to God to trusting that God's going to be there for him. David is shouting defiantly into the darkness of his current situation, day shall come again. I know it's going to come. God is faithful. It will come because my God has always been my help. In verse 7, he even describes how he's going to come. He'll come like a great eagle. He'll take me in his pinions cover me with his wings underneath the power and glory of his majesty. And do you know what I will do, David says, presumably, in the face of my enemies when I'm under the wings of my God? I will sing for joy. I will sing for joy. And David can only do that because he's moved from a place of, of remembering and recalling God to trusting God's goodness. It, it, it is faith. It, it, it's this link between him and God that allows him to taste some of the victory that is on the other end of this trial. That's what faith is here. And David is experiencing it. 
And the way that he describes faith is in this verse, this one verse which really occupy all of our time today. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So what does it mean to cling to God? What does it mean to cling to him? Well, to answer that, what I want to do first is I want to go to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, and look at something the Apostle Paul says. Paul, over the course of our time here, and not just Paul, other, other passages in Scripture, have put flesh and bones on poetry. They've brought the songs of David and, and showed us an experience of that song in the life of someone. And we're going to look at Paul here. Verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us, God delivered us, from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I said Paul puts flesh in and bones on this because this is Paul's flesh. This is Paul's bones. Taking Psalm 63 and, and the reality that's in this psalm and showing us through the lens of his life what this is like to experience this song firsthand. We need to see that. Paul here has experienced some brutal affliction in Asia. We don't know exactly what it is, uh, but we know that from his language here, it was a really rough situation, whatever it was. Um, he doesn't spare any details about how they felt during this time. It says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. Utterly burdened. It says, so much so that we despaired life itself. We despaired life. He's effectively saying here, we wanted to die just to put us out of our misery. That was how bad this was. He says they, they felt as though they had received the sentence of death. In other words, the affliction was so massive, so horrible, whatever it was, that death would have been a relief. I just want to die, which is clear that they felt like they were going to die because he refers to this as deadly peril. But look at verse 9. Paul says that this horrible event actually had a purpose. In other words, the affliction, the sentence of death, the deadly peril, all of that experience, whatever it was, was doing something in Paul. It was doing something in Paul's life, namely causing him not to rely on himself, but causing him to rely on God who can raise even the dead. So the purpose of this pain wasn't ultimately despair. It was a great uh, text, Dave, this morning. Lament in the Psalms. Lament is designed for us to go to God with our complaints and say, we need you, please show up. And some laments don't end with a positive note. But all laments are designed to pull us out of the despair into something else. So this purpose, pain here, wasn't 
for the, for the end purpose of despair. It wasn't a random event. Um, it wasn't outside of God's control. Like God was like, what's going on here? I didn't really plan for this. That's not what was happening in here. The dark night of Paul's soul in Asia, in this affliction, had a purpose, and that purpose was Paul's faith. Infinitely more important than his life and his health, all of that. He needs to believe and trust in God that even if Paul dies, if God wants him not to die, he'll raise him from the dead. Not a problem with this God. He needs to trust God. This is the kind of God, Paul, I imagine God telling him through this circumstance. This is the kind of God that I am. This is the kind of God that you're dealing with. So cling to me. Cling to me with your very soul. And I am un, I'm able to uphold you with my right hand, which is exactly what Paul says in the closing pa- part of this passage. He said, God delivers from such deadly peril back then in my life, And right now, in the middle of another dark night, whatever the situation is right now, Paul says defiantly, on him, on God, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Or another way to say this would be, I know that day will come again. I know it. Might be night right now. I know it's going to come. So David... And Paul are of one mind. In the middle of the darkness, they stand and they defy it with faith and confidence in God. They, they preach to their souls, I will hope in God. I will cling to God because I know that he will deliver me. Now, the question that every one of us in this room should ask when we see this is how do David and Paul make this journey to faith? From despair to faith. How do they do this? How do they go from where they're at right now to trusting and hoping in God? And the reason why this is an important question for us is because all of us at some point in time will taste this night, some part of it. You may have tasted it in the past. You may be right now in the middle of the darkest night of your soul or it may be next week or next year. We will all experience it because it is part of this fallen world that we live in. And so how can we say to God in the middle of the darkest night of the soul, my soul clings to you and mean it in such a way that we find ourselves anchored in his loving embrace. Like believe it, trust it to be true. And to answer that question, what I want to do is go to John 10. John 10 is where we'll be spending the rest of our time today. And you know John 10. You've all heard uh, parts of it. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it at least. Um, In between David's wilderness and in between Paul's affliction in Asia is a man, Christ Jesus. And he is the key to the shift in these people's lives, going from calling out to God for help to clinging to God in faith. And we see this communicated by him in John 10 as he's confronted by Pharisees who want to, guess what, kill him. They want to kill him. And you'll see why they want to kill him and what he says to them. Uh, And so engaging them, Keep in mind what Jesus is going to do here. We're going to look at, uh, starting with verse 10 of John 10. 
he is going to be creating a distinction between the Pharisees and what their role is, what their role has become in the lives of the people of Israel and who he is. And this is going to shine a light on what it means for us to cling to God. Verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So although Jesus is using a figure of speech, it's clear here that he's, he's trying to create a, a massive distinction between, a massive contrast between him and the Pharisees. Though the Pharisees should be shepherds of God's people, though they should be leading the people of God and protecting the people of God, they're actually more like thieves or, at best, hired hands who will run at the first sign of danger. And Jesus isn't a thief, and he isn't a hired hand. He is a shepherd. In fact, he's the good shepherd, so good, in fact, that he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. This isn't something a hired hand would ever do. But as a shepherd, this is not only something that Jesus can do, he desires to do this. He's going to lay down his life. He says, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for the sheep and those are God's people. Now, Jesus is obviously referring to an event. You guys know this event. The central event of the scriptures, the central event of reality, the cross. He's referring to the act of dying for God's people in order to secure their eternal salvation by purchasing them with his own blood. They will live forever because he dies. That's the laying down he's referring to. He says, I came that my sheep might have life and have it abundantly. He means eternal life. Now, that's pretty clear in this passage. I don't think we can miss that in this passage. What is less obvious is that Jesus, in the, in the verses that follow, is going to push beyond this act of eternal redemption, which is massive, He's going to push beyond that act of eternal redemption and he's going to tell the people who are listening to him speak how that act intersects with their life right now. What does it have to say about the dark night of the soul? What does it have to say about David's situation? What does this have to say about Paul's situation? What does this have to say about the situations that you are in right now or will find yourself in when you feel like God could not be further away? What does he have to say about that? 
lost myself in the manuscripts. <laughs> um, sorry. Okay, so scroll down to verse 25. That's why. Because <laughs> I'm scrolling down. All right, verse 25. Look at how Jesus responds to his adversary's question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And this is where we're going to find our answer. He uses this analogy of the shepherd, pulls it into an explanation about who he is, what makes him the Christ. Verse 25 says, Jesus answered them when they asked this question. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is saying here at the beginning, I've already told you, I've shown you through everything I've done, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. The reason you don't believe isn't because I haven't told you. I've made it abundantly clear. The reason you don't believe is because you're not one of my sheep. You're not. You're not one of my sheep. If you were one of my sheep, you would believe. You would hear my voice and you would follow. But you're not. And so you don't. Now notice, he doesn't say, to become one of the sheep, believe that I'm the Messiah. He tells people to believe elsewhere, but he doesn't say that that's decisive here. He says, only my sheep hear me. They hear my voice because I know them. I know my sheep and they follow me. In other words, I know them. I love them deeply. They're mine. They belong to me. And so when I speak... Jesus says, when I raise my voice and speak, they hear me and they follow me and I'm going to give them eternal life. They will never perish. They will never perish. Now, what's fascinating here is how Jesus describes people becoming sheep. What makes people sheep in the first place? Listen to the language he uses here. And I want you to think as we look at his language here, of what David said in Psalm 63, 8. Think about what he said. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Jesus says in verse 28, I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is huge. Think about what he's saying here. The reason my sheep hear my voice is because my Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me. He's put them in my hands. He's given them to me, and that's what makes them my sheep. His Father, God the Father, gives them to the Son. It doesn't begin with the sheep. It doesn't start with the sheep. It starts with the Father and the Son. And what this verse tells us is that for those who know the Good Shepherd, namely His sheep, 
they belong to God because of an act of God. God acted. God gave them to his son. And the act isn't a single event. What's described here is a perpetual reality. Being in the hands of God. Being in the hands of the son. It is a perpetual reality experienced every day in the life of the sheep. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. And then he undergirds that statement just so that we don't miss it by telling us something even more radical. So radical that if you were to read ahead, you'd see that they pick up stones and they're about to kill him. Jesus says, my father gave them to me and no one, absolutely no one can snatch these sheep out of my father's hand. And so the question is, well, are they in your hand or are they in your father's hands? You said that they were in your hands. Now you're saying that you're in your father's hands. What are you talking about, Jesus? And the answer to that question is yes, they're in our hands. They are in our hands because Jesus says, I and the father are one. We are one. And that nearly gets him killed on the spot. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God. I can hold on to him forever. And the Pharisees are not confused about that. You get a lot of New Testament critical scholars, they look at the text, they're like, Jesus never says, I am God here. Pharisees at ground zero were pretty confident that he was saying, I am God. They picked up stones and they wanted to kill him for it because they thought he was committing blasphemy. So get this, the very reason Jesus is the good shepherd, the good shepherd, is because these sheep cannot be taken from him. They are his forever. Jesus holds on to them for all eternity because he and the Father are one. And he says his Father is greater than everyone, everything. There is nothing that is greater than my Father. And therefore, they won't be taken from my hand. And that's the whole reason he says um, that if there was a, a thing that could take them from God's hands, like something greater than God, then we would have legitimate fear to being pulled from his hand. But he says, there is none. So if you're my sheep, you are safe. Now let's shift back to Psalm 63, 8 and look at that one verse and see how it connects. David, weeping on his knees, worried about whether or not he will wake up in the morning or will be killed by his son, his own son, who he loves, turns to God in faith in the darkest watches of the night and says to God, my soul clings to you. In other words, the deepest part of my being reaches out for your presence, God, for who you are, and I find purchase, the fingers of my soul find purchase in your loving embrace. And I cling to you. I'm not letting go of you, David says. And the reason he won't let go, the reason David won't let go, is because of the next part of that verse. Your right hand, God. Your right hand upholds me. David can only cling to God because God already has David in his hands. And he has refused to let go of David. 
He refuses to let go. No one can snatch David out of God's hands. No one. The irony of Jesus actually using even the good shepherd analogy would not have been lost on David. Jesus, the son of David, using the analogy, in fact, he probably used it for that specific reason. David was the consummate shepherd. In fact, the description of laying your life down for your sheep was something David knew well. He fought off bears and lions and held on to the sheep even when he was exposed to deadly peril. And here's Jesus promising the same thing. I will never let you go, even if it costs me my life. And it would cost him his life. As we already said earlier, I lay down my life for the sheep. And what this means is the foundation of every act of David in Psalm 63, from the very first verse all the way down to where we see him clinging to God, every act of David to pursue God is based on God already having David in his hands. That's what it's rooted in. God upholding David isn't a response to David's pursuit of him. It's the only reason David can pursue and can cling to God. Think back through this psalm. Think about all the things that happened here. The reason that David can seek God earnestly in verse 1, the reason that he knows anything about his power and glory in verse 2, the reason that he knows anything about his steadfast love in verse 3, or the complete satisfaction that you experience in God like fat and rich food in verse 5, the reason he can remember God in the watches of the night in verse 6, And the reason he can sing for joy under the wings of God in verse 7 is because he belongs to God. God is holding David in his hand, refusing to let him go because God, the Father of Christ Jesus, is greater than all. No one can snatch him. David's enemies, David's own son, the darkness that is pressing in on his soul right now cannot take him from God's hand. His father is greater than all. And so if you trust in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, this promise isn't just for David. It isn't just for Paul. It is for you. Jesus is telling us what eternal life is. Eternal life is a relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, between you and God, that binds you to him, causes you to cling to him, that causes him to uphold you in his hand. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. My sheep, he says, hear my voice and they follow me and I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. Perishing in this passage is being snatched from his hand. That's what perishing is. That's what happens when a wolf takes the sheep out of the hand of the shepherd. Jesus says it's not happening. It's not going to happen with me. And so being taken from the hand of Christ is impossible. That's why he is the good shepherd. And the reason it's impossible, there's a reason for it. The reason it's impossible is because Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. He does what is necessary to guarantee that they are in his hands. He's going to die so that he can keep his sheep forever. That's why he's going to die. 
And it is, it is his very death that guarantees that he will never let go. So let's bring this to a personal level. Um, if you'd grant me an opportunity this morning, what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is I want to take the realities that we've looked at in, in John 10, and I want to speak them to you on behalf of Christ. I want to speak them to you for those of you who trust Christ um, yet are in the middle of a dark hour or a dark night of the soul. And I want you to recognize, or even people who will experience it tomorrow or the next day, and I want you to recognize what Jesus is telling you in John 10. And so if, it, if it's helpful, close your eyes. If it's not, keep them open. This is what Jesus is saying to you in John 10. He is telling you, I have promised you that I will not let go of you. And I'm going to keep that promise. Even though you feel the weight and the strain of it on your soul and the dark clouds are pressing in from every angle, you feel as though I'm hanging on by a thread. I want you to know I am holding on to you and I will not let you go. Right now in your pain, in your struggle, in your sadness, in the pitch black of night, I refuse to let you go. That's what Christ is saying here as the good shepherd. And the reason he can say it is because Jesus faced the darkest night in human history so that you and I can cry out to him in the darkness with hope and say, day shall come again. I know it will come. And so what I'm, what I'm saying today and what we're looking at today from David in 63 is, is this. We need to preach this into our souls every day. Some days it will feel like we don't need this. Others, we will cling to this like it is the greatest jewel in the world. We need to preach this into our souls. It's crucial. And recognize that our souls cling to him because God upholds us by his mighty right hand. We can't get this turned around. It is crucial that we get this. The very thing that anchors us in the, the embrace of God, knowing that, that he ultimately is the one who, who paid for it, he is the one. He is the one who keeps us in his hands so that we can say and know, my soul clings to you. My soul clings to you because you're holding on to me. You're holding on to me like a little child, like a sheep. In a few moments, we're going to be taking communion and worshiping Jesus, the one who made Psalm 63 more than poetry, more than mere song, but made it reality for us, made it the pathway back home when we can't find home. So if your faith is in Christ, when you receive the elements as we worship and, and take these, I want you to see that the cross is massive. It is bigger than the removal of wrath, though it is that. It is bigger than the forgiveness of sins, though it is that. It is bigger than all of the different things that would make up the Christian life, though it is those things. And they're all glorious prizes of the gospel. In Jesus dying on the cross, he is making a promise to us as the good shepherd. He's making a promise to us. 
He is saying that he laid down his life so that no one could ever take you from him. No one. That's what makes him the good shepherd. Because when the wolves of the darkest night of your soul claw at you to pull you out of his hands, he holds on and says, I'm not letting go. I refuse to let go. And so consider this in communion, taking the elements. Think about the cross. Even when the pressure was the highest to let you go. Hanging on that tree nails in his hand, the wrath of God, the just wrath of God pouring out on him for the sins of the world. Even in that great agony, he still held on to you. He did not let you go all the way to his death. Therefore, what in this world could take you from his embrace? Nothing. So we need to do what Paul and David did. We need to cling to him. We need to rely on him. We need to cry out with every breath in our souls the promise of eternal life that even in the darkest night, day shall come again. He promised this. I believe him. My soul will cling to him because his right hand upholds me. His right hand upholds me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, it is humbling to look at a passage like Psalm 63 and recognize that over the last 3,000 years, really, but 2,000 years in Christianity, it is ministered to hearts and souls. And it shows us that, that not only your work in David's life, bringing him through this dark, dark night, to daylight on the other end. Not only this event was a benefit to him and his soul in creating faith in his heart towards a God who loves him, but it is ministered to so many hearts through the running centuries, Father God. And my prayer right now, Father, is that you take that one verse, Psalm 63, 8, and you take the reality of that verse and press it down deep, into the parts of our souls that need it the most. That we would say with David, to you, my soul clings to you. And your right hand, oh, do we need your hand, upholds us. I pray that that would be ministered to our hearts as we worship, as we take communion, and even as we reflect on this throughout the the coming week, Father, that you would pull us into the realities of this psalm and show us the pathway back home. We need desperately to find our way back to God. We need to see him, to taste him, to experience him, and to know that he is better than anything else in this life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.